What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We have a a really interesting episode today. What we're going to do is we're going to cut right to our interview. We're not going to do questions um, from from listeners in this in this episode because with the details on this one are are very interesting, and I want to I want to tell you briefly what they're going to be. All of you, no doubt, know about that indictment that came out Friday from Bob Mueller's special counsel's office of those Russian intelligence officers who did the hacking in 2016 and all the details that came out there. One of the things that emerged in that indictment that we suspected maybe but didn't actually know was that after the main hacking happened, hacking the emails that were given to WikiLeaks and all that kind of stuff, After that happened, and most of that happened in March, April, May, June, in that that general period, a few months later, in September, the same group hacked into cloud servers run by the DNC. And cloud servers, uh, these are virtual machines that exist in the cloud, not kind of desktops at your desk and so forth. They broke in, successfully broke in, and got access to applications and data from the DNC's analytics. Now, what is analytics? Good question. (laughs) It's a mix of the raw data. It is machine learning algorithms, applications, and so forth. A lot of people have been looking at this very closely because the first thing you think is, okay, what'd they do with that? Did they give it to someone in the Trump campaign? Did they give it to someone at Cambridge Analytica? Did they have some idea they were going to do something themselves and they just never did anything? We don't know the answer to that. But the thing that I have been very interested in is what would you do with it? Because a lot of us, if you are a political junkie, you know about big data and data mining and all that kind of stuff. And Obama did it great. And Hillary was going to do it great. and It didn't quite work out. But not that many people actually know what's being talked about there. The mix of data, targeting, machine learning, and so forth. So I wanted to find someone who really knows this stuff, who has done this stuff at this level to help us kind of walk through how much does this matter? that they got access to this data. What could you do with it? Is it something that would really matter, like have a big impact, or is it not? Um, one of the things that if you've, if you've been following conversations about this on cable news or on Twitter, some people say, well, look, the Hillary campaign was clearly caught off guard by what happened on election night, so their data sucked. So even even if it's illegal, like who cares? Because it was just even worse data than the Trump campaign had. That's not quite the case. There's an aspect of this that is not just having access to data, but having access to something more like the other team's game plan. 
So the guy we're going to talk to in a moment is named Ken Strasma, and he has been working at the very top of democratic politics for years. He ran the data operation for John Kerry in in both in the primaries and the general in 2004. He did the same thing for Barack Obama, primaries and general in 2008. And he did the primaries for Bernie Sanders in 2016. So he didn't work on Hillary's campaign, which is kind of good because we want someone who can kind of talk freely. But this guy really knows how this stuff is done. And he can help us uh, kind of piece together, like, how much does this matter? Uh, what would you do if you got access to the information and stuff like that? So before we talk to ten, uh, Ken, uh, let's really quickly have a quick conversation about our wonderful sponsor here at the Josh Marshall Podcast. Uh, born in Brooklyn and brewed in the Bronx, Grady's is New York's favorite cold brew, but you can have it delivered to your door no matter where you live. Their cold brew kit includes everything you need to create smooth, velvety cold brew at home. All you have to do is add water. No French press, no mess, no baristas. You save money, too. You get 36 cups of gourmet cold brew for only $30. That's less than a buck a cup. And shipping's free. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. So with that, uh, and David, I want to say, our, my hey, co-host Josh. David Tanner, we're, we're, I'm here we're, in the background, just hanging yeah, out. Yeah, we're, we're moving through this quickly because again, this is some really key information I want I want to share with you. So without any further ado, let's talk to Ken Strasma. Ken, welcome to the Josh Marshall Podcast. How are you doing today? I, I'm doing well. Good to be with you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. So let's, so we want to talk about, uh, campaign analytics and that whole world that a lot of political junkies kind of know through a certain you know a certain level of jargon but very few of us know it in detail and this is an area that you have worked on for uh, many years and a lot of presidential cycles. So it, can you quickly like, give us, tell us, you know, uh, going back to 2004 or, or whenever kind of the logical point is, what is your history in this line of work? I'm um, sure. Um, and 2004 really is the, the first time it uh, predictive analytics, uh, big data, micro-targeting, whatever you want to call it, um, emerged on the scene. Um, I had formed my, my firm in 2003 and, uh, we were fortunate enough in that summer to uh, land John Kerry's presidential campaign as one of the first uh, uh, Democratic campaigns that uh, uh, inv- invested in micro-targeting. Uh, what, when we talk about micro-targeting or analytics, uh, what we really mean is taking what we know about some people, and that's usually from survey data, combining it with data we have on everyone. So commercial marketing data, like what kind of car you drive and if you're a pet owner, uh, census demographics, age, education, etc., so combining those two uh, sources of data together to make predictions about the people we weren't able to reach. So say we had surveyed 10,000 Iowa likely caucus goers in preparation for the Iowa caucus, we could then build models that predicted how the rest of the population who we hadn't been able to survey would have answered those questions if we'd been able to reach them. Got it. Um, the Iowa caucuses, I brought that up just because it's a, it's a great petri dish for this type of technology. In a general election, you can, you know, very often rely on partisanship. You know, okay, this precinct is overwhelmingly Democratic or overwhelmingly Republican, so we'll, you know, we'll turn it out for our, our turnout operations, depending on which party you're from. 
in a caucus or a primary, you can't lean on partisanship. So you need to get a lot fancier in your targeting in order to find the people who are supporting your candidate or who are undecided. Um, and then for you know, the folks who are, are really into the, the inside politics, there's uh, the caucus math game that goes on in, in the Iowa caucuses, where if someone uh, doesn't have enough votes to get a delegate out of a precinct, um, people get to vote again. So you even need to model people's second choice. Right. Right. That all, all that technology uh, ended up being uh, being highly effective for John Kerry. Um, most people had expected Howard Dean to win the Iowa caucuses um, in 2004, uh, but Kerry was able to score a surprise victory, um, and we continued to work uh, for him throughout the the primaries and the general election. Um, the general was a. Razor thin, thin, but didn't come out the way I wanted. But fortunately, we had the opportunity to uh, to have another go at this in, in 2008 with Barack Obama. Uh, replicated the same uh, surprise upset in Iowa. Uh, went on to use the technology in the general election, and by then, in the intervening four years, a lot more people had gotten used to the technology. People who might have been a county organizer for Kerry in 2004 were were running states for Barack Obama in 2008. And so to them, this wasn't uh, black magic or science fiction. It was technology that they were used to using. They were used to being able to go on a voter file and pull down a score, giving the likelihood of someone supporting a particular candidate or turning out or what their top issues were. Um, And so with people uh, being much more familiar with with the data, it got used a lot more. And I think that was one of the the keys to uh, Barack Obama's success. So and then and then since then you have you have done you, you sort of bridge uh, and and correct me if I'm wrong obviously but political work and then also applying this to all to other other kinds of work corporate work and 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 so forth is that is that broadly broadly accurate since to, since 2008 um, very true that's, okay that's what one of the great things about the, this field is uh, it's never dull because we're we're able to work uh, in, in all sorts of different fields. We've done uh, movies, television shows, professional sports, um, and consumer products everywhere from from luxury cars to uh, to batteries. So uh, uh, there's hardly anything that doesn't lend itself to this type of type of technology. And the parallels to politics are, are very clear. And you have persuasion, just like in politics, where you've got someone who's likely to vote, and you want them to make up your, their mind to vote for your candidate. That would be the equivalent to someone who, say, is in the market for a new car, and you want to persuade them to, uh, to at least test drive uh, your brand of car. On another uh, half of uh, most political campaigns is turnout or get out of the vote. You've got someone who you know would be with you um, if they vote, and you just want to make sure they vote. Uh, the commercial... Uh, Equivalent would be like Coke or Pepsi uh, running an ad, uh, making people fe- feel hot and thirsty. So right. they think you you know you're going to reach for my company's product uh, if you buy. So try to uh, try to amp up the the demand to buy. So those parallels are are very clear. Uh, one difference is the political world operates at a much much faster pace uh, than the commercial world. That's something I've discovered. Uh, you know, when we'll talk to a commercial client who will say, you know, we really need to, you know, hit the ground running and get going right away. And to them, that often means, you know, 18 months from now, we'll, uh, right. we'll have a signed contract and be going, as opposed to uh, in politics, where those exact same words mean, so we'll stay up very late tonight and get it done. Um, and, and I think that's appealing to people, the, uh, the sense of urgency, right. um, 
for the political world uh, allows us to you know to move on internet time as as people say and do things a lot more quickly than the corporate world's been used to. Now, I, my understanding is you did not work uh, directly for Hillary Clinton in 2016, but you did work on the presidential 2016 cycle, correct? Um, that's true. I, I was uh, working for Bernie Sanders' uh, campaign in the primaries, um, and that was a Another uh, very fun and exciting uh, uh, use of the technology, um, and especially with Sanders, I, I, there, there are two key things, well, many key things to his success, but two where micro-targeting really helped. Uh, one was that he expanded the electorate a lot. He brought right. in a lot of people who'd never been involved in primaries or caucuses before, and being able to model who, who were those likely new Sanders supporters so mm-hmm. we could go out and find them and get them registered and educate them on how to caucus uh, was right. very important. Um, and then the other was was fundraising, uh, quite similar to uh, to his new voters. He got a lot of people who were giving for the first time ever to a political candidate, um, and being able to model that who were likely uh, Sanders donors was very powerful. So okay, so so now we're brought up to uh, basically today. That's 2016, 2018, but more or less the current uh, state of the art. And so. We want to, one of the things, probably everybody who's listening to this to this podcast knows that last Friday we had these indictments of a number of Russian intelligence officers for basically what was the hacking and distribution of mainly what we've known about is the emails that sort of dominated the second half of of. of 2016 and 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 dominated the follow, the the final months of the 2016 election but there have always been uh suspicions that what they had access to was more than just emails and emails broadly speaking presumably you find out a little information but basically it's about embarrassing people um and sort of you know disrupting the 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 progress of the campaign. But there was this part in the indictment that referred to analytics. And just so everybody's on the same page here, I'm going to read that part. It's pretty pretty brief, just a quick paragraph. It says, in or around September 2016, the conspirators also successfully gained access to DNC computers hosted on a third-party cloud computing service. These computers contain test applications related to the DNC's analytics. After conducting reconnaissance, the conspirators gathered data by creating backups or quote-unquote snapshots of the DNC's cloud-based systems using the cloud provider's own technology. The conspirators then moved the snapshots to cloud-based accounts they had registered with the same service, thereby stealing the data from the DNC. Okay, so... That keyed in a lot to me for for a few different reasons. One is the the date is 2016. Most of the most of the hacking of the email happened in in March, April, May, in, into June. So this is a few months later, even a few months after they were first exposed by CrowdStrike, as as you know, Russians had broken into the DNC servers and stuff. But I think for a lot of us, let me let me just kind of put this to you. When you hear that. That they accessed, and and as I, with my limited understanding of these things, it sounds like they they created snapshots of of the virtual machines and instances they had on. I don't know if it was Oz or something else, but they kind of. It sounds like to me they had more than data. They had 
the whole kind of sandbox and applications and stuff like that. So from your knowledge, what does this mean to you when you hear this? Well, well, it's definitely alarming. Um, I think anyone who, who reads about uh, what happened in 2016 um, should, should be should be alarmed by it and should be taking steps to make sure this doesn't happen again. Um, one thing, though, about uh, at the analytics data, if they were downloading um, lists of, of millions of names, right. um, it wouldn't be readily apparent to them what was being done with those. Okay. Um, an experienced analyst could take the stolen data and go through it and probably reverse engineer what were likely to be the contact universes fr- from within that. Right. Um, and perhaps come, come up with, with some kind, kind of mischief, like you know, voter suppression calls to try to get the model likely Clinton supporters to to stay home, right. um, that sort of thing. Although they, they you know have access to their own analytics, and the overlap between those two would probably be uh, be fairly high. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, if if I were guarding a, a system against this, as worried as I would be about the outright theft of this data, uh, would be someone manipulating the data and changing it. If someone right. was able to get in, into the voter files and uh, change people's scores in a, a largely random and fairly subtle way so that it, you know, not like zeroing everyone out where it would be very obvious that something had happened. Right. Um, they could uh, cause a campaign to be contacting exactly the wrong voters, you know, turning out Republican supporters for the, for the DNC. Right. Things like that. Right. And that really highlights uh, two, two dangers, the cybersecurity danger where someone could get in and cause that kind of mischief, and then the, the danger that happens when too much stuff is computerized and centralized. Right. Um, if you have a grassroots-driven campaign where people are knocking on the doors and they're able to report back, you know, hey, there's something screwed up about the list today. You know, every, every, one I knocked, every door I knocked on was a Republican. Right. Um, right. You know automatically that something is happening. But if the mindset is... The computers know best. Just go blast out these paid communications. Right. You're not going to catch that perhaps until too late. One thing that I have thought, and I say thought based on very imperfect knowledge, I want to I want to see if this is true. When I read this, my sense was that this wasn't what they would be referring to here is not just data, but um, basically kind of, I don't know, I'm not sure, literally applications and programs, but something beyond data. Because obviously data, as you said, the, the the other side has its own, you know, data. And a lot of that is, uh, you know, purchased from similar sources. So it's, it's, it's presumably the, the data that is being referred to here. And, and, and let's note, it's not actually the Clinton campaign's data, it's the DNC's data. And I, I don't have a sense of at that point in the campaign how much that's basically being shared or whatever. But the other side can get data too. But is that, it, it seemed to me that that accessing the whole virtual machines, if that's what they're doing here and replicating them, would be a little bit more like getting the other team's playbook than just getting their data. Am I, is that, it sounds like what you're saying that that's maybe, that assumption is maybe not correct. Um, it there is some truth to it. Um, by accessing the machines and not just the data, but the programs that were run, the machine learning programs that were run to to create those scores, right, uh, would give them insight into how the DNC team w- was approaching things, right. Um, 
I should h- highlight, though, that it's not like there there is a secret formula that one side knows and, and the other doesn't, and right. that you could hack in and have the secret formula and suddenly level the playing field. Right. Um, there, there is an arms race in analytics. You know, all sides are constantly trying to improve their models, and you know, we're definitely investing in R and D all the time, um, and keep the the newest best stuff secret. But the timeline this moves on, especially with you know open source so- software these days, and so many different uh, both academic and commercial and players as well as uh, political working on it, the technology moves very fast. Right. So. Um, I, I don't think it, it would be a game changer for someone to be stealing the programs. Okay. Um, okay. They could could get so, some insight, but it's not. Um, but sort of like a kind of a very like fluid a, a arms race, right? Okay. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Right. So okay. So when you see this, so so let's say let's 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 create a hypothetical, and let's say you were running the Trump campaign in in the timing question, and. You are given access to, let's assume for the sake of conversation, that this is, uh, you know, snapshots and and recreations of the whole uh, Clinton cloud environment. So you have access to everything. And you're thinking, okay, what do I, what can I do? Do let's let's set aside the, the the moral aspects of this, just in a functional sense. What can you do with that? How is it? Can how much can it help you? And what and what would you do with it? Uh, well, first thing, even though you said said we're we're set, setting aside the the moral and ethical aspects, I, the first answer should of course be um, you contact the Clinton campaign, inform them of, of the of the breach, and work with, it, with them to make sure it's closed. Right. right. Uh, that said, uh, that you know what someone should do. Um, I, I I think if if you had. Uh, some of this intelligence, and, and there are ethical ways of, of gaining that intelligence, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, without hacking into the computer system. Uh, but if, if you had that in information, um, I think getting that idea of their, the big picture strategy would probably be the, the most tactically useful thing. Mm-hmm. And okay. I talked about you know ha- having some sense uh, of you know being able to get this without uh, hacking. You can know who's receiving a campaign's mailings. You know, see who's you know, what mailings show up where, or where TV ads are running, in order to, to reverse engineer right. um, the other campaigns, voter contact programs. Right. Uh, having someone hack into the, the cloud servers um, and know it on a detailed level just takes that to, to the next level. Okay. And if they're able to say, okay, so the Clinton campaign is counting on putting back together the Obama coalition and turnout among it having to be at a, cer- at a certain percent, then that would give the Trump campaign guidance on what they needed to do to suppress certain Clinton voters. And it might have given them, you know, re- reason to believe that that was the, the strategy more so than trying to persuade uh, undecideds or independents. Right. Um, and so the Trump campaign could, uh, could focus on voter suppression among the uh, low likelihood uh, low turnout likelihood uh, Clinton supporters rather than persuasion among independents. And presumably the data would include, like, these are the lowest, these are the most marginal, marginal in the sense of, like, uh, uh, propensity to vote, the most marginal. So if you're going to hit people with, like, uh, demoralizing messages, it would maybe give you some insight into that as well. Yes, it would. So here's, here's another question I had, and this has come out of a few conversations that I've had and ones that I have 
sort of uh, listen to. Some people say, well, look, you know, clearly there was some basic failure on the part of the Clinton campaign. Now, that doesn't sometimes you just don't model the electorate. Right. You, you know, you fundamentally it doesn't mean anybody did anything technically wrong. You're just, you know, you're in an area you didn't know you were in. But at some basic level, they were caught off guard. Um, and so people have said, well, OK, so let's say someone stole their data and gave it to Trump, but it was obviously bad data. So kind of as a, you know, maybe it's still illegal, but as a practical matter, it wouldn't help because it wasn't, it was, it was bad data in some sense. Does that make sense? Is that a, is that a logic that follows? I, I could see where people are going with that argument. It would still tell them that these are the people Clinton's going after, you know, whether or not you agreed with the Clinton campaign's modeling and decisions to go after those people. Right. It would still give the Trump campaign a, a leg up to know that the, you know, those were the people among whom they needed to compete. Right. And and presumably, and, and I would guess that it's one thing to sort of just use common sense or sort of be able to infer from ad targeting and stuff like that. But if you like know, like you actually have the list, that just is a that's a big step forward if you're trying to kind of push against that strategy. It is in that you can, you know, launch robocalls for suppression or direct mail to these people, et cetera. Right. Um, but, you know, one one caution to that is it's it's not rocket scientists rocket science to know ninety percent of that target universe. Uh, you're going to know it, it's just you know re- regular registered voters in battleground states. Right. Uh, you could write on the back of an envelope, you know, in CRAN a contact universe that would probably be ninety percent right without any hacking or careful reverse engineering. Right. So, so you, you sort of look, look at the states that count. You look at, at, at registration. You throw in a few demographic keys and like you're kind of almost there. And then the question is whether that last 10 percent is, 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 is key, you know, and I guess conceivably in a very right. tight race, it could be key. Yeah. And, and of course, that's you know, why, why firms like my, my own spend so long working on uh, refining that last 10 percent. Right. Right. Okay. So now there's something you, 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 you mentioned before about, and, and, and to be clear for, for our readers, there's nothing, well, you know, it's funny. There is something, there's something else in this indictment. I'm not sure if you saw this, but at one point, these GRU officers hacked into the, I believe it was the DCCC site, created a sort of phony Act Blue site that was called Act Blues, plural, and actually linked the, you know, linked the uh, made this phony site the back end of the Act Blue page on the DCCC site, which is which is just uh, wild that you could that that, that is, is 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 doable. That's not exactly the same as 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 manipulating or changing data, but it gets you thinking in the same direction. Now, there's nothing in this indictment that says anything like that happened with these analytics, but just for how campaigns run. And what kind of data redundancy you have and backups and whatever, is it conceivable that you could manipulate the data if you had access to it? Um, it it's, it's definitely conceivable. And I, I, think, uh, I think everyone needs to be really worried about that happening. I had not heard uh, that, that example about the, the Act Blues as opposed to Act Blue. 
Yeah, no, um, it's, and that kind of subtle change that's you know easy for any anyone to miss. Yeah, yeah, no, um, it's it's just and, like yeah, exactly. And on campaigns, you you have hundreds of field workers, uh, you know, doing data entry after they they do a shift, knocking on doors. So you know, for this data to be useful, lots and lots of people have to have access to it. Right. Um, so there are literally thousands of logins to voter files available. Now they're li- they're limited. People get. Uh, access to, you know, only the parts of it that it's supposed to have access to. But still, it's, a, it's an awful lot to keep track of. And it's one of the challenges when coming up with security best practices is that if you make your security practices too stringent, um, people won't follow them. They'll start to circumvent them. If you right. force someone to have a 20-character random password, no one's going to remember it, so they're going to write on a post-it note. And right. suddenly it's less uh, less secure than someone's the name of someone's first cat. Right, 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 right. But presumably to get, like, to to take snapshots of the entire instance or, like, multiple instances, you're going to need root-level access. You're not just going to be coming in through some field workers, like, segmented password access, That's I right. would assume. Right, okay. So now... In the in the way this works, so there's no, um, I mean, just kind of thinking hypothetically how how I would do this. And again, I mean, through running TPM, I have a, a small amount of knowledge in this stuff, but tiny. You know that that you could maybe have some program that was taking, you know, taking an image, checking it against an, Im- you know, another image two hours later and kind of seeing if there was manipulation. I mean, I could, you know, obviously you're having, as you said, you're having people update the data in real time. Um, but I guess it sounds like from what you're saying, it's not some sort of near theoretical impossibility that once you gained access, root level access to these virtual machines and instances, you could make subtle manipulations in the data, which could be a big deal. Um, yeah, it, it definitely is a concern. And there, you know, it's some, something that we've implemented safeguards against. Um, and like you say, uh, taking snapshots and comparing them for changes and doing the checksums and counts so that, so that we, we would be able to see um, if there had been a wholesale change. And that could apply either to hacking or, you know, just... Uh, accidental hardware corruption on a right. disk, both of those right. things you need to check against. Right, right, right. There's also the danger, you know, I mentioned how there's thousands of people with logins. Mm-hmm. Inevitably, some of those are mischief makers on both sides, um, pretending to be volunteer for a campaign and logging in to try, okay. try to uh, enter bad data. Um, and that's something we have safeguards against, too, that we're able to you know, track behavioral patterns in order to tell, okay, clearly this person is entering data faster than they could have knocked on the doors or, or dialed the telephone so we can flag this as, uh, as bad data. Interesting. Interesting. So, and, and just for, I guess, for, for our listeners, that would be because it's not like these are long-serving members of your company. This is like we're having volunteers come down here to the headquarters and head out and, you know, kind of there's really no real vetting. It can't be. It's it's a that's just right. Right. A campaign wants stuff. to bring in as many people as possible, right. and right. that means you know a hundred new people in the, in a night. Uh, you're not going to be able to watch everyone all the time. Right. Right. Okay. So, is there is there anything else you can share with us? Um, a you know, finding out this new information, finding out that there was apparently a separate um, break-in to these 
uh, cloud instances uh, somewhat later, you know, in September, we don't know when in September, but in September, um, you don't, you don't do that just for a lark. I mean, that's, you're doing that for some reason. Is there any, is there any other, um, issue that people who are interested in this should be thinking about to, to, uh, in the sense of, well, you know, if they broke in and got all this analytics, I would be worried that they would do X or that they would do Y. Anything else that we haven't discussed? Well, there, there is, um, separate from the campaign and party committees, computer systems, there's uh, the, the state uh, secretaries of state and, and voter registration offices. Um, I think w- one of the most likely targets for mischief would be finding uh, lists of, of your opponent supporters, uh, which could be done in like the, like the DNC hack, um, and then trying to purge those people from state voter registration lists. So when that person goes to vote, they're they're no longer on that on that list. Right. Um, as far as I know, um, there's not evidence of that actually having happened, although there's evidence of they are attempting to gain access to those computers. Um, so I would actually be very surprised if they hadn't at least tried. Right, um, and it is one one of the things that you know causes me some sleepless moments is wondering, you know, with all of this stuff that's come to light, uh, what was out there happening that hasn't come to light yet? Because uh, obviously, people who are up to this kind of nefarious stuff are doing their best to keep it secret. Yeah, I mean that's I and for our listeners, I mean I always, you know, you, you, uh, hypothesizing can get you, you know, can can get you into some strange places pretty quickly, but. One of my concerns has, for the last two years, been that it's not like there is a national voting system, a national voting database that has, you know, all the sort of best practices, you know, records that should keep records of intrusions and all that kind of stuff. It's 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 not even just 50. It's 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 a few hundred and lots of them, you know, with with old, you know, it's 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 a mess. So it's a, it's always been a little hard for me to believe that anyone is in a position, you know, the FBI, the secretaries of states in these various states to say, you know, no votes were changed or, but, but again, what we're talking about here isn't votes being changed per se. If I'm understanding you correctly, this is just, you show up and you're not on the list, right? That it's not, it's not, and if you have reason to believe that uh, a certain list of people are supporters, 80% of them are going to be supporting your opponent, right. um, that's the equivalent to uh, to taking votes away from your opponent if you just make sure their supporters can't vote. Right, but you don't, but it, but it doesn't require you to kind of drill into the actual counts on election day. You've just right, reshaped right. They, the electorate, basically. The voting machine, they're... Right, you've, right. you've like done a purge, a kind of a <laughs> an extra legal purge of uh, of of what's going on. And and to be clear, we don't um, there. There's certainly nothing in this indictment, and there is no um, there's no public agency that has said, you know, we found cases where people's names were were removed from voter rolls. We d- we don't have any evidence that that. Uh, took place. What we're talking about here is a little lack of confidence that anybody is in a position to really know or say say definitively. Um, so last, as long as we have you here, you know, one of the the other part of this story is with the Trump campaign, 
at the beginning, at least, you had uh, people running the digital part of the campaign who not only had no experience in the kind of data work that we're talking about here, didn't even have experience in political campaigns. There was a couple, a, a guy who ran a web design firm down in uh, San Antonio. Um, and then they hired people as you would sort of, you know, if, if you're smart, if, if you if you don't have the expertise yourself uh, in a position like that, you bring in people who know what they're doing. And then in August, especially you have Cambridge Analytica coming in. Uh, and there's obviously all sorts of questions about the data that they had, data that they had stolen or kind of taken outside of their, you know, illegitimately out of the Facebook ecosystem, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Anything else that we should be thinking about as as we think about that part of the story? I mean, because in a certain sense, like, let's say, uh, let's say, you know, they stole all this data. Well, Facebook has the data, right? I mean, so it's, it's, it's not kosher, but it doesn't mean that... Um, doesn't mean people weren't allowed to vote. Uh, what else are there? Are there parts of that part of the story that that you think people are should be thinking about but aren't? Well, one thing I definitely believe is that people should be uh, on the lookout for new iterations of Cambridge Analytica. So you know, CA went went out of business after the the revelations became public. I worry that the same players and at least the same tactics have just gone further underground. Okay. Um, you'll notice, you know, if you know, you probably get plenty of uh, spam phone messages on your cell phone, despite the fact that you know robocalls to cell phones in most most cases are illegal. Um, and if you try to track who's doing those calls, it's you know it's a company that you know folded 48 hours ago and moved on somewhere else. Right. I right. worry that um, that. The, these bad actors are being pushed underground, um, and the same behavior is still going going to be going on. Just even harder to regulate because it's not uh, not done by known established firms. So okay, so let me let me let me press on that a little bit more because this has been something that I have wondered about for a long time. So y- you have a firm that works in data. Presumably, you know you're not you're not you're you you are. Uh, generating data, you're probably buying data from various, uh, uh, you know, d- data sellers. Uh, there's a whole economy of that. Presumably, you're not, you know, uh, uh, doing what that that Kogan guy did <laughs> and just downloading like you know huge amounts of personal data you have no uh, access to. But in what sense? In what sense is was or I guess is no longer? But in what sense was Cambridge Analytica? really any different from a whole bunch of firms that work in the data space and and compete by coming up with different kinds of algorithms and machine learning and stuff like that. So one one of my um, thoughts about uh, Cambridge Analytica is that they they actually weren't as advanced in machine learning as most of the more established firms on both the Democratic and Republican side were. Okay. Uh, they, were, they were very good at self-promotion, selling the sizzle and presentations and all. Um, but even when, when you talk to, to people on, on the Republican side of the aisle, um, they didn't think they, they weren't actually doing much um, high-tech modeling with that data. Okay. Um, but what they were able to do is you know, they were willing to either skirt or violate the terms of service at Facebook, depending on your point of view. 
um, which makes me think, um, you know, what else were, were they willing to do if they were willing to turn a blind eye to that? Right. Also, that coupled with uh, their their founder and CEO uh, bragging about, uh, you know, bribes and illicit <laughs> videotape and right. stuff like that, you know, in, in a pitch meeting. Right. You know, if you're right, talking right. in a pitch meeting about those kind of nefarious tactics, uh, you have to assume that they, they weren't drawing the line there in the real world either. Right, right. Okay, so this is interesting because I when... After Trump was elected and everybody was sort of collectively thinking, like, what on earth just happened? Obviously, Cambridge Analytica had a lot to be gained by saying, well, what happened is we we operate at at a quantum leap forward from what everybody else is doing. And, and there were all there were always a lot of people saying, like, you know, yeah, they say psychographic and this blah, you know, blah, 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 blah. But there's just promotion. And not even, you know, everybody promotes themselves. That's how you, that's what you do. That's what you do in business. But it's interesting to say that, that you're saying on the actual modeling and machine learning, they were behind the curve, not ahead of the curve, let, you know, not, not even, you know, on the curve, let alone ahead of the curve. That's, that, is that right? Am I understanding you right? Um, yeah, that, that, that's my sense. Um, and, and I use the, you know, the word my sense rather than saying I, I know that for sure, because as I alluded to before, it's, you know, it's an arms race, and people are keeping their uh, their best algorithm a secret. Right. Um, but you know, I, you know, work work in this field with with a lot of uh, folks, and you know, hear uh, you know, gossip back and forth. Right. And so, so it, re- it, it based on all of that. Although they you know they don't let me look under the hood, but my my sense definitely is that they were not actually as advanced as any other. So, so that to the extent they had a, a competitive advantage, it may have been cheating. Or willingness to cheat, or just break yeah. rules, or or steal data, or do or do whatever. Interesting, very interesting. Um, yeah, I think so. A, a willingness to, at the very least, skirt the rules, if not outright break them. Got it. Got it. Listen, this is uh, is very edifying for us. It's it's um, as as I as I hoped we would learn. It's my it it's it's advanced my understanding on that because it it really does sound like. The issue there, and again, from this one little paragraph here, we know very little about what they got and, you know, so on and so forth. But it does sound like, you know, it's, from what you said, largely data, but there is an aspect of getting a sense of the other team's game plan that if used by other sophisticated data scientists could be a big deal. Maybe doesn't make you go from like a, a 40-60 race to a 60-40 race, but you could pick up some votes in some key areas. Yeah, you definitely could. And, and all of this technology only makes a difference in a, in a close race. Right. Uh, and, you know, especially recently, uh, presidential elections have been uh, decided by razor-thin margins, so it can make a difference. Right. Well, it's good for business, <laughs> right? <laughs> if we went back to 1984 <laughs> campaigns, the, 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 uh, the political data field <laughs> might, might not be in great shape. Well, Kent Dresden, thank you so much for joining us. I really, you know, there's, there, there are very few people who really understand this stuff at the level you do. So this has been very helpful and I appreciate your taking the time. My pleasure. Great talking to you. Okay. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Okay. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I, I, I learned a great deal, a little, little different than I had thought. I was very interested in this issue of changing the data. Now, again, we don't have any evidence that that happened. It's not mentioned in the indictment. Uh, it's really not something that we've heard anything about at all. But I was interested to see that he did not necessarily think it would be that 
difficult yeah, to do. And, and his point about, which I guess seems obvious in hindsight, but that there would be troublemakers in each campaign that would pose as a volunteer who right. would try to just muck things up a yeah, little bit. That was yeah. interesting. I mean, you know, some of that stuff might be able to go off undetected, but it sounds like there are safeguards that yeah, I mean, know, I that, guess that are in place. Yeah, what I took what I took from that was where I think the uh, obstacle would be is that it sounds like you would you would need to know a lot about this kind of work to manipulate the data in a way that would not just instantly come out and say like, okay, obviously someone right. just totally, uh, you know, junked everything. Um, but very interesting information. So uh, l- let me remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Uh, we are going to try to do a second episode this week. And when Whenever the next episode is, whether it's this week or the normal time next Tuesday, we'll be back with your questions. Yeah, keep them coming. Thanks so much. Bye.